It's good to be back up here. It's good to be before you. Uh, I've, I've, missed, I've missed preaching. Uh, the last four weeks, Michael has done a, an excellent job walking us through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but I've, I've missed being able to, to bring God's Word before you. And so uh, I hope you're, you're ready this morning. Four weeks of, of no preaching. There's some, some lost time that we've got to make up, and so I hope you packed a, a lunch. And uh, we're starting a new book on top of that, the book of 1 Timothy, so no promises this morning how, how long we may be here. Um, I know Michael just prayed for us, but I want to pray again. Uh, he, he didn't know this. We didn't have an opportunity to, to speak. Uh, uh, about five minutes ago or five minutes before the service started, I got a text from Dallas, or a voicemail from Dallas, and our brother Chip Stark, who many of you know, uh, is being rushed to the, to the emergency room right now. Um, he, he passed out, and blood pressure uh, went, went, went really low, and, and so they're not sure what's going on with Chip right now, and, um, and Dallas is, is following the ambulance uh, to the ER, uh, and so I, I would love for us just to, to pray again for our brother Chip. Um, that's all I know, and that's all the voicemail said. I didn't ask for even permission to announce that, but, but uh, it's serious enough that they're rushing him in an ambulance, and so let's, uh, let's, let's pray for our brother Chip, and then we'll jump into the Word together. Father, we love you, and uh, we come to you this morning um, with the, the few details that we have on behalf of our brother Chip Stark. Um, God, we pray that you would put a, a, your hand on him, um, that, that God, whatever's going on in his body, they'd be able to, to, to figure out quickly and, and, uh, and give him the medical treatment that's needed. Um, God, we rejoice that, that Chip's a faithful brother and, and that and that he and Miss Barbara at church this morning and, and, and worshiping you. And, and so, God, we just pray that you would protect him, our brother, right now, and heal his body. We pray you'd be with Miss Barb and, and even Dallas as they're following and following the ambulance and going to be by his side. Um, God, we pray for a full recovery, that, that, that it would be your will to restore our brother and, and, and continue to use him for your glory here on, on, this, on this planet. And so, God, I, I pray for him. I lift him up to you. We know you're capable and that he's in your hands. He's your son. Um, God, I also bring our time together to you this morning as, as Pastor Michael's already prayed. I, I pray that as we look to your word, you would teach us, uh, that, God, you would equip your people to live as your people, and that you would convict the lost of sin, and that the, the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ would be the only thing uh, the only beautiful, majestic, glorious thing that they would see this morning, and it would be forever life-changing. We give you this time. May Christ be magnified. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. David Jones is a, a professor at Southeastern Seminary, right up the road where Michael and I both did some schooling. And uh, he wrote a book not long ago uh, called Health, Wealth, and Happiness. In that book, he notes a an incredibly disturbing trend that we see. Uh, this is the quote, um, 46%, 46%, almost half, of all self-proclaimed Christians in the United States believe that God will grant material riches to all believers who have enough faith. 46% of all people that would call themselves a Christian believe that. Sort of the catch-all term that we summarize this sort of thinking and this sort of belief is the prosperity gospel, but it comes in many forms, it comes in many shapes and sizes. And to sum it up though, the prosperity gospel promises material 
or physical blessings in this life, uh, such that the, the central elements of the gospel, which we believe to be true, the, the finished work of Christ, the, the forgiveness of our sins on the cross, the resurrection, our sanctification, those gospel truths, those things take a back seat to the material blessings, the promises of physical health, those sorts of things. And professing Christians in America have taken the bait. As Jones notes in his book, 46% have taken the bait. But it's not just here. This teaching is sweeping across many parts of the world, many countries. Uh, This sort of teaching and this sort of false gospel is spreading like wildfire. It's one of the reasons that we're planning, God willing, in January uh, to go to, to Uganda, but, but not our normal trip to Uganda, um, where we'll, we'll do medical clinics and BBS. Uh, this trip in January is specifically for pastor training. We're uh, taking, it'll be four of us going, and uh, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to sit with and train 60 pastors over the course of, of a little over a week. Uh, some from southern Uganda, where we've been located in Lumino Town. Some from northern Uganda, a part that we've never had a ministry towards. But the reason that we would do something like that is because this sort of false teaching is, is spreading like wildfire across many parts of Africa. And uh, we believe the Lord would lead us to, to go and teach gospel truth and train pastors to teach their congregations. And so false teachers are alive and well. False teachers are alive and well in our country and around the world, but we would be naive to believe that this is a new problem in the church. You see, 2,000 years ago, when Paul was giving some final instructions to the elders in Ephesus, and go back to Acts chapter 20, we just studied through that book not long long ago, Uh, but Paul warns them of of savage wolves, is what he calls them, that will enter into the church and wreak havoc on the church there in Ephesus. And when we get to 1 Timothy, which we're starting this morning, we see that Paul was absolutely correct and that it didn't even take centuries to play out. False teaching was already in the church at Ephesus by the time of Timothy's leadership there. That's how quickly false teaching and false gospel, uh, false uh, heresy uh, can spread in the church. And so false teaching was a cancer that had to be removed at the church of Ephesus if they were going to stand on the truth of God's word. The same is true for us today. The same is true for the church in America, for Popular Spring Baptist Church. If we're going to stand on the gospel, we must identify false teaching, heresies, false gospels, and avoid them as we stand on the word. So let's jump right into the text. I gave you a handout last week. Uh, some of those are still available in the foyer and uh, different, different pedestals as you walk out of the sanctuary. I gave you that and I told you that I was doing that handout because we're not going to do an introduction to the book. What I meant there is uh, we're not going to do a whole Sunday on a sort of setup, background, context work for studying this book. And that's sort of true and not true, right? So you have that handout, um, and I'm not going to spend this entire morning giving you a setup for the study, but as we read the first two verses, you'll notice, and as we expound on the text and teach through the text, you'll notice by necessity we're going to have to do some background work. And so two verses this morning, every word is intentional and important. And so let's, let's read together, and then we'll walk back through in an attempt to understand it. Uh, if you want an outline, we've been doing the outlines on the, on the screens. Uh, we don't have one this morning. If, you're, if you've been enjoying the outlines, uh, I'll give you the outline. Here it is. It's simply verse 1 and 2. The text is literally the outline this morning. We're going to walk through verse uh, 1 and 2 word by word. I joked uh, with Michael this week that I have fewer words in the text this morning than he, he had verses in his text last week. So, uh, so two verses, start in verse 1 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning I want to walk through, first word you see there is Paul, right? This is the the very first word when we start reading this book, and in many ways this is the typical greeting for a a Greek style of letter, right? Any kind of letter that would have been common at this day and at this time in history, it was started with a greeting that was very similar to this. The author identifies himself, Paul. So who is Paul? Well, he's apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, It tells us that in verse 1 also. We'll see more about that in a moment. Uh, But we just studied the book of Acts. And as we studied that book, you remember, Paul's missionary travels uh, comprise most of, or the majority of the movements, at least in the latter part of that book. Paul also wrote 13 letters that would make up your New Testament. And so if Paul is writing, and he's writing to Timothy, which is the other part that we see there in these first two verses... We can piece together some information, some details that give us some background and some context that are helpful as we begin to study this letter. Like, if we know Paul's writing it and he's writing it to Timothy, then we know the time and place. We know that Paul stationed Timothy in Ephesus, the church there, and he he started that church and uh, he places Timothy there to to lead it in Ephesus. That gives us the place and the the time. It's around the mid-60s A.D., At that time, Ephesus was a large city, a diverse city, but a pagan city. Uh, It was flourishing because it was a commercial hub, and and people would travel through Ephesus for business purposes. And so as they traveled there for business reasons, they're confronted with the the cult practices of that day, in particular, the worship of the goddess Artemis, the the, the false god Artemis. And as they're worshiping there, they're surrounded by magic and sorcery, uh, all sorts of paganism, soothsaying. And all in the name of this false god, Artemis. In addition to the time and place, uh, we know a bit about the challenges that Timothy faced as a result of ministering in this very lost city, right? The challenges we see as we, as we read the letter. If you just simply, have, in preparation for today, uh, read the, the letter of 1 Timothy, then you probably notice some of these as well. They stand out to us because they're often repeated. We see patterns and we see things that Paul is addressing for young Timothy. And in doing that, we see some of the challenges there, even within the church in Ephesus. Here's the incredible thing. As we note what those challenges are, as we look in the text and see what they are over the next several weeks, we see that they're very similar to the challenges that we still face today. Let me give you some examples. These are just some of of the highlights, some of the things that stand out as you study through 1 and 2 Timothy. Men and women needed to be instructed about their God-given roles in the home and in the church. The church needed instruction on how to conduct their gatherings, what to do when they came together as the body of Christ. How should faithful elders and deacons be identified and appointed? What does it look like to call out men to serve the, the local congregation and shepherd the people of God? Widows needed to be cared for. How should they do that? What things should be in practice and and what what things should they be doing to care for the widows in their congregation? The idolatrous pursuit of of wealth, right? This is a thriving city, a business hub. And so there's this constant temptation uh, toward the the pursuit of wealth at all costs. That sounds familiar to today. I mean, these are some of the same things we, we wrestle with in the church today. Many of the same things. 
In addition to those challenges the church faced, the, the church at Ephesus had to deal with false teachers, as we've already mentioned a little bit, propagating heresy in the, the church. In fact, we'll see uh, in, in the weeks ahead that Paul specifically mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander um, as two individuals who'd been excommunicated from the church. It says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that they were, they were excommunicated for rejecting uh, um, faith and good conscience. And so we know that, 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 that whatever these specific heresies were, we're not told exactly what it was with Hymenaeus and Alexander, but whatever it is, it would probably be that it would be the things that Paul's mentioning several times as we study through this, through this book. And so you see some of those stand out. Now, as I read some of these heresies that are false teachings that are showing up in the church at Ephesus, don't think, and shame on Hymenaeus and Alexander, why would they do that? Why would they teach these sorts of things in the, the, the local church there in Ephesus instead? Ask the Spirit, as I point it out to you, to, to search your heart. Ask the Spirit, am, am I guilty of anything? Would, would Paul be calling me out for some of these very same things if I said it was in my heart or if I, if I were to put a spotlight on what I'm doing in my family or in the local church? This is some of the things they were battling, the heresies in the local church. Chapter 1, verse 8, they were straying from doctrine. Chapter 1, verse 4, they were involved in myths and speculation. Chapter 1, verse 7, they misused the law for their advantages. Chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, they were immoral. Chapter 4, verse 2, their conscience were seared. Chapter 4, verse 3, they were wrongfully forbidden marriage and, and, and some foods. Chapter 6, verse 4, they loved controversy and quarrels. Chapter 6, verse 5, they were using godliness for material gain. These are some of the strong that they were dealing with in the church of Ephesus and I think we see these things uh, in, in churches today. And here's the thing. The thing that churches most of the time fight about, right, the, the, the things they squabble about, the color of the carpet, the style of the worship, the masks or no masks, like those sorts of things that we get caught in these discussions and frustrations and, and, and fights over, those things are not of first importance. The thing that Paul is calling Timothy back to is what they, in their heart, what each person in the body, what they believe in their heart, what they believed about the incarnation of Jesus and the, 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 the salvation that's in Christ alone and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Women preaching and, and forcing other believers to abide by your personal convictions. These sorts of things was that's what Paul is warning Timothy about. These are the sorts of divisions that crept in the church of Ephesus. And this is what concerns the Apostle Paul as he's instructing Timothy. And I have much more to say about those things than things that we often swallow over. These are first importance, what we believe about what God has said. And so we, we get that and we see a summary of the whole book uh, in, in chapter uh, 3, first Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is sort of all saying, this, this is the intention, this is the purpose of it. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Did you catch that? Everything that, that, that Paul's going to do here and say here, he's just giving you his, his thesis statement. He gets to chapter 3 before he knows it. But Paul's saying that this letter is written from Paul to Timothy for the church of Ephesus so they would know how to behave in the household of God. I'm going to sit right there for a second. You could say that Paul is writing Timothy 
so they don't know what the house rules are in God's house and among God's family. You know what house rules are, right? This is something that, that I learned I discovered as a young boy. I would go over to friends' houses, and, uh, and then they would come over to, to my house and play, or spend the night, whatever the case may be. And some things we did didn't fly at their house, right? Like my folks didn't have a no shoes in the house rule. So I learned quickly when I went over to a friend's house, they don't wear shoes in their house. House rule. My cousin came over to my house, right? He learned quickly that we had a uh, you don't waste food rule. He got a fudge signal. You know those chocolate frozen things? Fantastic. On a hot summer day like we have right now. Uh, and he ate one bite of it and threw it through the trash. My daddy said you do that. <laughs> you just messed up, man. You messed up early daddy. Hey, boy, you don't get that thing out of there and finish it. We don't, we don't just take a bite and throw something away. It's house rules, right? Like these are these are pretty common. And I'm certain as Desmond gets older and your kids come over to our house and Desmond goes over to your house. You know, if I think about it very long, it, it, it sort of makes my blood pressure go up thinking about some of the things that you may discover, right? Like about our house rules or vice versa, right? Like I promise. We don't think that they go in the yard and pick up sticks for fun. He just enjoys it. That's not a house rule. Let me tell you, you pick up sticks all day. It's not the truth. Well, kind of not the truth. He just chooses to. That's what he enjoys to do. So house rules. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul here is laying out house rules for the people of God. How you are to behave as members of this household. That's why the graphic that you see says that is sort of the, the thing that we're kind of small. Life in the household of God. How are we to live, think, behave as God's people? And man, this is applicable for today. If you believe this is applicable today, I can't imagine something that we would need more as a church and as a, as a people today than how are we to live, to behave as God's people in this world, in this culture, in the climate context that we live in right now. And we have to remember the church is God's idea. It's his bride, the bride of Christ. And so there, there, there are many sort of how-to books and conferences and magazines uh, on, on how to do church. And, and not all of them are bad. And in fact, we, we go to some of those conferences and we read some of those books here at Papa Spring. But man, how much of that stuff would be unnecessary if we just quit ignoring what King Jesus himself has said about how his people should behave as his people. So in summary, this letter is written so we'll know how to conduct ourselves when we gather to worship like we are today, and when we scatter to serve King Jesus on every other day, right? And so <coughs> all of that in the first word of Paul. That's what he's getting at. That's what he's doing. That's who's writing this letter. Let's keep reading, though. Um, see the, uh, the way that this reading continues. This is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. I know we usually read these, these first verses, these intro verses, when we start reading the book of the Bible, and maybe we're in our quiet time, and we sort of treat like throwaway verses, like, oh, yeah, duh. Uh, but we can't just skip them like they don't matter. This is more than just a dear Tom sort of standard greeting that we would use in a letter that we would write. Paul's giving his credentials here. He's reminding us and Timothy in the church of Ephesus that he's an apostle. So what does that mean? That it's authoritative and better missing. So it's important that Paul mentions that he's an apostle at the beginning of the letter. What in the world is an apostle? Well, Acts chapter 1. I know we're talking about Acts a good bit. Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22 shows us that in order to be one of the original 12 apostles, 
An individual had to be present in the earthly ministry of Jesus from his baptism by John to his resurrection and ascension. And so, when you hear somebody at, at the church down the street say, you know, we, we have an apostle who's leading our church, they tend to ask and, and kindly and with grace say, Jesus makes a difference. You don't have an apostle. Um, Jesus sent these men, these specific men, these apostles, they were eyewitnesses to his ministry. They saw the resurrected Christ with their own eyes. So that, that's the key. The physical eyes saw the resurrected Christ, and God used many of them to write the New Testament. And so we can't treat this letter as trivial. No, it's, it's in fact the opposite of trivial. We have to pay close attention, careful attention, because it's given to us by a special representative of the king. And so that's an apostle. But let's look at the rest of this this. This phrase, an apostle, by the command of God and our Savior, our Savior and of Christ Jesus. So here, Paul's sort of doubling down on his point about being an apostle. The source of his apostleship, the reason he's an apostle, is uh, from, it's a commission from God the Father and Christ Jesus the Son. He's grounding his authority in the Trinity. Right? He's emphasizing two persons of the Trinity. He's emphasizing that he's not elected by men. He was not uh, appointed by a group, right? He's divinely appointed to be an authoritative representative of the risen and ruling king. That's what he's saying. Now, if I can clarify, tell you something right here. I think we can elevate these men or even this position sometimes to an unhealthy place. Not everything an apostle said or wrote is authoritative. Right? Think about Paul having to go in and confront Peter because of, of his hypocrisy in Galatia. Paul is an apostle, Peter is an apostle, and yet one is confronting the other because of, because of sin, because of favoritism, because of uh, hypocrisy. And so authority doesn't ultimately rest in these men, no matter how special their position is. Rather, Scripture carries the authority, and these men were used to record Scripture. That's why Paul tells Timothy later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired by God. Men are not inerrant. God's word is inerrant. In the same vein, uh, our interpretation, your interpretation, my interpretation of Scripture is not inerrant. God's word is inerrant. Amen. It's for all of us. And so, we, I think it would be, be good for us to sit for a second and think about this and the application that we that we get from the application that's implied here. The fact that God's word, this letter that we're studying, is inspired in an error, this bad error. <coughs> It's not just a doctrine to be affirmed. It's the firm foundation that, that, that everything we believe stands upon. Like, we don't have the gospel apart from this inerrant word. We don't understand who Christ is. God's not been revealed to us apart from his revealed word, his, his inspired scriptures. So in a world when everything around us seems to be caving and, 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 and collapsing in on itself, systems that are just falling apart, we as the people of God, we can stand on the word of God, the truth that we have. Like when we when we can't determine which voice to listen to, right? In, in the world, the media, and culture, the doctors to listen to, what, what, what news outlets to listen to. Like we have the opinion that matters. We have the air word of God that we must stand on. Yeah. And so God's word must be heard then, right? So I think about the implications of that. If God's word can be trusted when these other voices can't, then we must be hearing God's word and listening to it more frequently and louder than those other voices. That's the implication there that we have from the authority of God's word. And so we don't just hear it, though. We do hear it, and then we submit to it. 
trusting and knowing that what God has said is true, it's unchanging, it's trustworthy. If it was for, for the church at Ephesus, they are known as Timothy's leadership, it is now for us today. So let's continue. There's one more part of this phrase, this initial greeting that we see. There's two words there. Christ Jesus, our hope. Before we move on, we have to note this. Paul didn't say, your hope. Or Paul didn't say, your God. Even though he just made his apostleship clear, even though he just made his authority to speak to Timothy and the church of Ephesus in this way that he's about to speak to them, he still places himself under the authority of God, under the authority of Christ. Paul's hope, our hope, Paul says, is Christ. If Paul would see the glory of heaven, then it would be on account of Christ's death and the forgiveness of Paul's sins. His hope, along with Timothy's and the church of Ephesus, is Christ. Unlike the people of Ephesus, the, the lost pagan people there in the city of Ephesus, Paul's not talking about a, a nameless deity, right? Like some, some, some god that fell out of the sky. He names God our Father and Christ Jesus our hope. An intimate relationship Paul has with the Father through Christ the Son, and he's saying this is the hinge of all of it. This is the hope that any of us have, and it's our hope as well, church. Paul intended Timothy and the Ephesian church and us today to reflect on our only hope in life and death, and that's Christ. So if we have hope in this world or in the next, it is in the blood of Christ. And so Paul will spell out more later in his letter with more detail, places like chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, and believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. He's our hope. So Paul's hinging everything on. If, if, if not for Christ, then we are hopeless. Let's continue. So the greeting, the introduction here, he says, uh, so Paul introduced himself, uh, made his authority clear, on the basis of God, the Father, and, and Christ Jesus, our hope. And he says to Timothy, my true child in faith. As we've already mentioned here, Paul's telling us who he's writing to. He's <coughs> writing to Timothy. And I'm not sure about you, but I really like Timothy. If you've ever read 1 Timothy or ever spent any time studying this book or, or, or Paul's interactions with Timothy, I think one of the reasons we like Timothy so much is because we feel like he's one of us, right? And he doesn't feel like the same last saint that, that some of these biblical characters feel like sometimes. So as John Stott actually says a halo would not have fitted comfortably on his head. He's a real human being, and he's, and he's frail, and he's imperfect, just like us. What do you mean, Matt? Well, let me give you a few ways that Timothy is just like us. First, Timothy came from a mixed family, a Jewish-Gentile uh, marriage. And he had a godly mother named Eunice, and uh, she was a Jewish woman who loved the, uh, the God of the Bible, and she was married to, to a pagan man, Timothy's father, a Greek man. They lived and raised Timothy in a pagan town, uh, Lystra, we think, most people believe that, that Timothy was converted there as a boy when Paul was traveling through there on his first missionary journey. He, he preaches the gospel, he hears of Christ, he believes. Now remember, Lystra is also the place where Paul was almost stoned to death. Right? Like, one of the most incredibly used missionaries, apostles of God is almost stoned to death in uh, Timothy's hometown. So Timothy was not he was not of the right stock, you could say. He was, he was half-free. He was Jew-Gentile. He was also from the wrong side of the tracks. He was from that place that almost killed Paul. 
Second, though, Timothy was really young when Paul addressed this letter to him. So if strike number one is being from the, the, the wrong mom and daddy, you know, being a half-Jew Gentile, the second strike against him was that he's a young, a young guy, right? Chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says, let no one look down upon you on account of your youth. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul urged him, clean the evil desires of youth. And so we gather from this that Timothy evidently felt inexperienced or immature or young for the heavy responsibility that Paul's laying on him. Can we be just a little bit honest this morning, church? Has anyone ever felt ill-equipped for a task? Anyone ever felt like you don't have the training or the giftings to do what God puts before you? Maybe just me. Ever felt so overwhelmed because you, you didn't have the age or the experience or the knowledge that your colleague had? You're a good company. That's right, number two. He's young. Immature. Maybe that's the way it is. Thirdly, he had a shy temperament and needed affirmation and encouragement and reassurance. You say, well, Matt, how in the world do you know the guy was shy? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verse 10, Paul urged the church of Corinth that, uh, to put him to ease, to settle Timothy's heart and mind when Timothy was traveling to be with him. And again, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul felt the need to exhort Timothy not to be ashamed of Christ, and, 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 and that God had not given him a spirit of humility, right? It's encouraging. Don't be shy, don't be timid, don't be ashamed of, of Christ. Now, think those things are just broad brush statements, right? I don't think that, 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 that Paul is just throwing out some general encouragements and then hoping that one of them will stick and sort of be a, a blessing to, to Timothy, minister to him. No, I think, I think he knew Timothy. I think he knew his struggles. I think he knew his personality. He spent time with him. He knew his challenges. He knew exactly how he was built and things that he wrestled with in his own heart and mind. And so he's specifically encouraging him. I know you may include you to be bashful or timid or shy. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed of, of, of the gospel, Timothy. So you can fairly call Timothy Timothy Timothy. Sorry, preacher jokes. But since we're being honest, this one church, how many of you have, have, you, have you been there? Were you just at a place where you needed affirmation? You needed encouragement. You needed reassurance. You needed someone to come alongside of you and, and walk with you through difficulties, challenges at, at home or at work because they were overwhelming. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the only one that can relate to Timothy. I'm relating there. This one said, husbands, the wives need your affirmation. They need your encouragement. They need you to come alongside them with your words and encourage them. And the same thing for wives. Your husband needs you in his corner. Why? He needs you to be his, his biggest fan, his biggest supporter, someone who will lift him up and, and reassure him and encourage him. Shot. But the fourth one is a fourth strike. On well, baseball, we don't have that. Timothy had it. No, he was physically sick. He was infirm. He suffered from some kind of a gastric problem. You said, wait, how in the world, Matt, do you know? How can you go back in history 2,000 years and diagnose someone's medical illness from the Bible? Well, Paul referred to it. He referred to this habitual ailment, and in particular, his stomach. And he actually goes on to prescribe a little medicinal alcohol in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 23, he tells Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and for your frequent illnesses. 
Church ever struggle physically? Ever been in a place where you just some kind of illness you can't seem to shake? It's just a nagging thing, a, a nuisance, and a problem in your body that maybe it's diagnosed, maybe it's undiagnosed, but either way, you just pray that it will go away, and it doesn't. It just seems like the Lord has allowed you to live with it. And how frustrating that can be, and how discouraging that can be, especially if it's something that hurts and it's a physical pain. I don't know about you, church, but I'm crying now. I won't want those details here, but I covet your prayers. I've asked God to remove this issue, this, this sickness, numerous times, and he has it. That's fine. If he's allowing me to have it, he's leaving it with me to call me to, to have greater trust in him, and that, that's for his glory, and that's okay, that's good. It's not me, by the way. I don't have COVID, I promise. He said, I know of. You don't been discouraged, though, because of something physical. You're going to get this is one of the reasons that I don't trust the health and wealth gospel that we started this morning by talking about that's all over TV nowadays. This sort of just name it and believe it. And if you believe it hard enough, if you believe it well enough, deep down in your soul, then, then that, that's the only thing that lays between you and your healing, right? Well, this is the Apostle Paul and Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, that we're going to see more about this morning. He didn't heal him miraculously, and Timothy didn't believe hard enough that his stomach pain was gone instantly. So to put all these details together from Paul's writings, we meet Timothy, that's young, insecure, timid, sickly, or at least he had some sort of nagging physical stomach pain. And some would say his characteristics disqualify you from the, 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 the charge of leaving the church of Ephesus. The Lord would say otherwise. That's why he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you then, my son, that's what Paul said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So this is what I'm showing to anything, church, if there's any application in this for us, it's this. That the power to follow Christ, the power uh, to live obediently, the power to lead his people, the power to disciple others and make disciples in this world, that ability, it doesn't hinge on us. The ability to make a difference in this world and in our, in our community and around the world, that, that power doesn't come from us. And contrary to popular opinion, you are not enough, right? You haven't been enough, you won't be enough, and in your own strength, you'll never be enough. In our weakness, though, he is made strong. By his grace, the work will be done. And so we labor and we're told, not by our own strength, but by his and in his, and through his grace, the work will be done. And so we see it as we begin to, to learn and study a little bit about the young Timothy. I want you to see though, the rest of how the rest of this introduction and how Paul addresses. Um, the, the end of this reading to Timothy. He says, this is Timothy, my true child in faith. Here we see Paul love Timothy affectionately. He loved him, he loved him like a son, a true child, he says. This doesn't make Paul or Timothy a, a sissy or a wimp or a softy, right? Because he uses this sort of affectionate language. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you go back and look at 2 Corinthians 11, tells us that Paul was a dude who had been scourged uh, by a whip, 39 lashes, 39 lashes of a whip, five times. In addition, he, he'd been beaten with rods three times. He'd been stoned once. He'd been shipwrecked three times. A night and full day he spent adrift on the sea, multiple imprisonments for preaching Jesus, sleepless nights because of hunger and thirst and sleeping in the cold. He was constantly at danger among, among those in the, uh, in the wilderness and in, in rivers and among robbers. All of them were. 
She goes exactly to the eleven, and he sort of sounds like Bear Grylls, Bear Grylls, almost steroids. steroids. And yet still, he expresses here to Timothy and, 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 and to the church at Ephesus, but them all listening to him, and then us 2,000 years later, how much you love Timothy? He used his words to, to affirm Timothy, to show how much he cared for him, to build him up. I feel like one of the greatest flaws, church, and listen to me close, one of the greatest flaws in our culture and increasingly in the church is that we find it much easier to spew our hatred or frustration towards someone or some group than we do to share our love and affection for someone or some group. And you think about just the, 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 the temperature of the climate in that. And how easy it is to run to social media or to, 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 to just in, 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 in parking lots or grocery stores where people interact and mix and how much more frustration, hatred, Conflict we see and hear, and we do with affirmation and, and, and affection for one another, and it's increasingly becoming the case in the church. Paul didn't have the problem that, that, that we see here. He looks at Timothy and he says, You're my true son in the faith. The son of affectionate uh, title and, and that he gives Timothy. And it appears to have sort of a double blessing. If you think about the, the impact this would have had for Timothy, first, it it gently eases any pain that Timothy would have felt because he was regarded as illegitimate according to Jewish law because of his Greek daddy, right? So you have a Gentile daddy, right? And so illegitimate according to Jewish law. This statement from, from Paul eases any sort of pain that he's been dealing with in that sense. The second sort of blessing here in this statement that Paul makes is that it affirmed the spiritual legitimacy of his faith, of Timothy's own faith, Right? In other words, whatever the church in Ephesus may have heard about Timothy having a, a pagan daddy was all washed away when Paul affectionately called him a son. It was the only stamp of approval that they needed. Remember they got the start of this, this church that God used to, to, to lead us all to faith in Christ and share the gospel with us? He called him a son. <coughs> and it wasn't an isolated incident either. Paul says to Timothy, I'll give you some places. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Because I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verse 22. As a son of his father, he, Timothy, served me in the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you. That I may be filled with joy. Can you imagine the comforting effect that these words would have had on the, the young, timid, sickly Timothy? either typed or spoken, to bless others this week. I thought we could all grow here, church. That is so easy in our culture right now to let our words be negative or biting or sarcastic or skeptical or cynical or demeaning. This is the strangest year, at least in my life, right? With everything that's happened this year, the virus, on top of that, it's an election year. And it's so easy, it's so tempting to, to just be uh, destructive in what we say and what we say to one another, even for the lost. that we'll hit this morning, and we'll hit it pretty quickly. In this reading, verses 1 and 2, Paul ends in this way. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This final phrase is, a, is a, 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 another sort of thing that we see in a typical greeting, but it's, it's different, right? 
is a little bit different. And, and here's the thing too. This is another place where if we're in our quiet times, we're in our, our prayer closet, and we're reading the scriptures, and we still we gotta get to work on time. So we read and we start a book like this, and we read this introduction, and we're reading it in distance, and our brains go, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Churchy word, churchy word, churchy word. Uh, from God, Jesus. Yeah, I got it. Check. Uh, I did good. I read my Bible today, right? But when we take a moment, each of these words is more than intentional and on purpose. Like Paul's intending for each one of these words to hit with, with meaning and power. So let me, let me show you how that, that's the case. The, the standard Greek greeting in a letter was greetings. Makes sense? Uh, we still do that today often. Here, though, Paul changes the Greek word to charis or grace. And then he added the typical Jewish greeting, which was shalom, peace. And that's the typical greeting that we see from Paul in all of his other letters. If you go and read the other letters of Paul, grace and peace. That's how he introduces, or that's how he'll, and even in a benediction, he'll say grace and peace. And so maybe some of you, in your letters, grace and peace. That's a very Pauline thing to do. You're doing that, following Paul. But here in verse 2 Timothy, he does something different. He adds, he inserts mercy. He has mercy between them. He creates this sort of mega, triple blessing here for, for Timothy. And so let's think for a moment about each one of these real quickly. Grace, right? Invoking God's grace upon Timothy, Paul is, is referencing not only the saving grace that, he, that Timothy's been born again, but God's continued grace, right? And so what Paul's doing is he's observing God loves his children. God desires to bless his people with, with gifts and blessings that Timothy uh, naturally had come to him from the Heavenly Father who loves Timothy, and so Paul is just praying for that thing which God already desires to do, right? The undeserved favor and blessing that God desires to pour out on his people, and Paul is praying that he would pour out on Timothy. You want to know how you can pray the will of God? Pray today, pray this week that God would bless body or body, that God would bless your brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean he's going to give you every material thing. It doesn't mean he's going to heal you and give you uh, wellness in your body every time you pray that. But God desires to bless his kids, his children, his people. So Paul's doing is praying for God's grace on somebody's life. Second, mercy. Right? This is the added word where Paul adds this, this additional word to his standard greeting. And this is comes with the idea of God's special care for a person in need. Right? The Old Testament equivalent was, was hesed. You see that word has said in, in the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms, in Ruth that we just studied. And the idea is that it's help, it's, it's a particular kind of help in a time of need. Right? So maybe Paul's using that because he knows Timothy's uh, Jewish mom would have taught him these Old Testament stories, and so Hesed would have had a special meaning that would touch Timothy's heart. Maybe Paul uses this word because uh, because of Timothy's weaknesses, right? His youth, his timidity, his stomach pain. And so he's praying, God, your mercy be on Timothy as he leads your people in Ephesus. Either way, Paul's praying, God, be merciful with him. And then third, peace. And the first Paul has to mean peace with God, Romans chapter 5, that we have an inner peace as believers, that as we've been born again, we're not, not enmity with God anymore, but we have peace with God. This is John chapter 14, verse 27. Made right with God. Jesus says in John 14, Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Paul's prayer for Timothy was, was this tranquility, this inner peace, this relationship with God such that anxiety, fear, worry melts away. That his well being would be at ease as he led the church in Ephesus through difficult circumstances like heresy and, and a pagan culture. 
and all sorts of things they're going to do. And so when you think about these words together, what a beautiful prayer this triple blessing was. The source of grace and mercy and peace was the infinite resources of God. That no matter how much God had blessed and brought his grace, mercy, and peace, there's always more in Christ. Because Christ is that source that doesn't run dry. He's that well that will never be empty. And so God blessed Peter, uh, Timothy in this way. So he's praying for him. Paul's prayer to young Timothy, grace upon grace to equip him for ministry. Mercy upon mercy to attend to. We need to stress that he may have, physically or otherwise, and peace upon peace throughout every season of life, no matter what the day brings. So church, as we start to study this book, I want to make one thing really clear, and we're wrapping up. From the start of this study, God's not calling Timothy or the church of Ephesus to clean up their act in order to gain God's favor. So when we say uh, that, that Paul's writing chapter 3, I'm writing so you, you would know how to behave in God's household. He's not writing you have to clean up your act, right? Get in order. Get your life in order such that God would, would have favor upon you. And the same day, we're not called to appease. Think about this. We're not called to appease a perfectly just and holy God through our obedience. God himself has decisively dealt with our sin in the cross of his son. And he secured us an eternal and unshakable hope. So on this basis, God addresses the people in Ephesus through First Timothy, through the letter that Paul writes here. God's people are only made right with God by God's grace. And so conducting ourselves or behaving as God's people is also only possible by God's grace. And yes, it's imperative that we obey these commands. We conform to his will. We obey the things that Paul's going to say in this letter. But we do so out of the context of a loving relationship with him that's only made possible by the gospel. In other words, here's what I'm saying, church. You don't muscle up. You don't pull up your bootstraps and will yourself into obedience so that God will look your way and smile. Instead, as Christ has purchased you by his blood, you are loved by the Father already as if you have lived Christ's perfect life. And out of the joy of that relationship, out of the joy of that salvation, it's our honor, it's our privilege, it's our joy to obey. To behave as he's commanded us in places like First Timothy. So I don't want us to miss that. I don't want you to, to hear a bunch of commandments from Paul and think, I've got to do this, do this, do this, so that I'll be loved by God. You are loved by God if you are in Christ. If his blood has washed your sin, you are born again, you are his, and he looks at you as he looks at his own son, Jesus. Let's go with the future. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. God, it is here this morning. Grace and mercy and peace would be abundantly made evident in the lives of your saints, your people here at Father's Spring. As you have saved us by your grace, you would sanctify us by your grace. And you would form us into the image of your Son Jesus as a body here at Father's Spring. Give us grace. Give us mercy. God, there's here, if it wants here that that are struggling physically with sickness or any kind of ailment or in their, in their body or, or mentally or emotionally dealing with, with depression or some sort of uh, ailment like that, God, would you give mercy? As Paul prayed for Timothy, would you pour out mercy upon mercy? And then peace, God. If there's any here this morning that, that never surrendered their lives, you never trusted Christ's finished work on the cross, God, I pray today they would come to know the Prince of Peace. That by repentance, through faith, and by repentance, they will trust the King of Kings 
that would trust that Jesus' death on the cross is their only way of salvation. God, give us peace. Would you keep us? Would you help us to live in the household of God for the